This podcast is sponsored by OMI, the company that makes CRM work. Today, I am speaking with Amy Barbieri of Vital4. Uh, and Amy, I wonder if you could, um, you're the co-founder and president of Vital4. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about what you do. Sure, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, co-founder and president and actually chief growth officer of Vital4. Now that's a, a little bit of a, hand, a mouthful there. Um, my role at Vital4 is really to help drive strategy for our brand, internal, external messaging, go-to market strategy. Also support our chief revenue officer and sales, business development, marketing efforts. Um, so I also drive the prioritization of our technology roadmap and work closely with our you know product development teams as well in respect to what the market is looking for, but a little bit about Vital4. We are a woman-owned technology company located here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we're actually known um, as a regtech or a fintech company. We provide data, uh, global data, to companies all over the world um, for compliance purposes. So those companies use our data to mitigate risk within their organization and to try and stay compliant with uh, whatever the global regulations that they're trying to comply with are. Um, we're in a couple of different markets. One market is the global background screening industry. So we provide data to the industry for pre-employment purposes, again, to mitigate um, with someone they're hiring. And then uh, into the financial services industry for global anti-money laundering and know your customer uh, regulatory compliance. So, Amy, uh, look, I know I know the audience for this uh, has some some idea about this this industry. For for someone like me, who who and people who may maybe a little a little less familiar, can you tell me a little bit about how you do what you do? You know, it it, it it seems like a huge problem that you're trying to solve. And and I know you have various ways of doing that, but like, I, I would have no idea how to get started with, you know, screening, you know, background checks or like screening for information or like looking for cyber crimes or, you know, all the stuff that you guys do. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. Well, so high level from a problem perspective, globally, I think it's nearly $2 trillion. Our, our in illicit funds go through our banking system. And, and I'm speaking more from the financial services industry, and then I can touch on the background screening industry. But, you know, with those illicit funds, um, crimes that are being, you know, taken, you know, through the processes, terrorism and human trafficking, drug trafficking, you know, scams involving the, involving the elderly and, and things like that, and it's horrific type thing. So, so really the banks that are responsible for identifying these types of activities and these bad actors, if you will, they're faced with a huge task to be able to, you know, wade through a lot of data to try to identify these types of people. And so with that being said, they're faced with a lot of regulatory fines every year. I'm talking in the billions of dollars. And so part of, part of that falls into what I mentioned earlier, the anti-money laundering um, regulations. And so the problem is, 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 like I said, the sorting through all this data and trying to get to the relevant data is, if you can imagine, a, a massive task. So what we I do... Can, and, and, and just to, just to jump in, I, I, I would also imagine that a lot of that data is like proprietary or private. Like, you know, I'm just wondering how, you know, and I'm sure some of it is like public because of regulatory sure. stuff, but um, maybe maybe you could just uh, untangle that for me as well. Yeah, sure. No, that that's actually a great question. And people ask me that all the time. The majority, surprisingly enough, the majority of the data is publicly available. And then you would think, well, then why would they need somebody like Battle 4 to, to capture that? But it's quite complex. Um, so when you think about 
you know, 240 countries around the world and they're all publishing different types of lists. Um, and that, that's in respect, you know, kind of one category. And then you're talking about media outlets all over the world where we capture information on and try to identify people that are, you know, in kind of in the negative light in the news. If you could imagine hundreds of thousands of sources and how do you capture all that into one place? Well, that's kind of where where we come in. So kind of to, to your original question, to kind of simplify what we do, think of our technology as a giant search engine. And it it goes to a very highly curated um, list of sources all over the world. And of course, we have to configure every single one of those, but we've been doing this for a long time and, and um, that's what we're that's what we're good at. And so we're able to capture data um, in real time directly from the, the source. In a lot of cases, government published sources. Obviously, there's a lot of sanctions news right now um, with what's going on in Russia. Um, so that type of information we're capturing. And then we're delivering that you know, to our customers in, in real time as possible. And then they're looking to that data for insights, right? Hey, hey, what kind of level of risk could this person or could this company that I'm you know, doing business with pose to my organization? That is fascinating. And I would imagine that there's maybe also the problem of companies flooding uh, with so much information to sort of maybe hide stuff sort of the way a company might do during discovery, you know, in a lawsuit or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah. Well, that's, that's, another, yeah, that's another conversation too. That's a whole, a whole podcast in itself and part of the anti-money laundering regulations and trying to identify what we call universal beneficial owners of, of companies, because that's a really good way to hide uh, illicit funds and through those shell. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you could talk to me about the the global regulatory landscape, like just sort of, um, I don't know, fill in that landscape painting for me so I can sort of understand the the breadth of that. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different regulations all over the world that we can help companies comply with without getting too in the weeds and putting everyone who's listening to this <laughs> to sleep. As I mentioned, the anti-money laundering um, and know your customer regulations and there's and they're different per country so a lot more stringent in europe than what we're seeing you know here in the u.s however we're starting to see more especially with our new administration they're putting more stringent controls in around that so i'm starting to see kind of the concerns that are from the financial institutions here in the U.S. very similar to what's going on in Europe. So I think we're starting to see that shift. But those those things change um, constantly and they're constantly adding to the regulatory requirements. And it puts, you know, banks, cryptocurrency now is, is falling under that category. Real estate in Europe, we're, we're going to probably see that happen eventually in the U.S. So, you know, again, where we are from a regulatory perspective and where we're going is, is not, you know, it's not going to get any easier. There's there's regulations that we have to follow around background screening, and that's called FCRA, which stands for the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, and you think about that as like a, an Equifax or TransUnion or something being a credit reporting agency and having to follow those guidelines. But that background screening industry has to follow Fair Credit Reporting Act, uh, you know, policies as well. So we have to we have to look closely at that. Um, and there's a lot of things that are changing constantly there. In the U.S., there's data birth, what we call data birth redaction. So they're saying, hey, you know, you can't use an individual's date of birth anymore to identify a person to a record. So if I'm delivering a criminal record to a background screening company and they're trying to make an appointment decision, they're going to have to pass through a candidate that potentially has a very dangerous background because there's no way to quantify that information. So there's a lot of things going on from a regulatory perspective, not only here in the U.S., but 
but all over. We also help comply with the UK Bribery Act to just some similar to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act here in the US. And, um, you know, it, the, the list can go on. Those are just some, some examples. That is really helpful. Yeah, I know. That's really helpful. Thank you. So I'm just curious about actually your gut level reaction to this question. And it might be, you know, tell me if it's too simplistic, but I wonder, you know, you mentioned the new, the new administration sort of amping up the, the regulations. You know, when regimes increase sort of the, the annoyance factor for, you know, financial firms, do you see a corresponding decrease in white collar crime or is that, does that slider actually work or, or I'm curious, like just whether you have noticed that in your career? No, I haven't. And I don't know that I, I would, I'm not that much of an expert in that area where the increase in crime has happened, particularly with COVID and the whole digital transformation that's happened. I mean, if you think about it, it's expedited the process. And so now we're moving really more heavily to digital payments versus, you know, the traditional way we've been doing things for many, many years. But God has expedited white collar crime and, and fraud and corruption exponentially because it's given it kind of a, the criminals a segue into, you know, just being able to to hide and hide their true identity because it's more, you know, it's all digital versus, you know, when you, you were able to go into a bank branch and open up an account, there's a process and there's a human that's face-to-face, a lot less opportunity to fake your identity in that, in that instance. So that's where I see, yeah, the opportunity. That, that, that's really, really interesting. Thank you. Can you talk about how do you keep pace with the changes in tech, like like from the vital four side, what are you doing to you know what are you implementing? What, what to to like keep it? You know, you mentioned crypto. I'm sure that's that's got to be a headache trying to get a handle on that. But you know, just in a in a wider sense, how are you guys? Um, how do you guys do that? Well, yeah, I mean, we have to. So we have to stay pretty up to date on on what's going on in the world, if you can imagine. And we have a pretty strong compliance team that actually keeps a keep a library of information that actually our customers have access to that basically houses all the data privacy laws in every country and territory in the world. That's a start. But yeah, we have to we have to keep up with what's going on from a regulatory perspective so that we can stay ahead of things and, you know, keep our product roadmap full of things that are going to help solve those problems for customers. From a technology perspective, we are a definitely a technology driven, you know, innovative company. And this is something that, you know, we're, we're always looking forward, you know, forward thinking with um, taking advantage of all the new um, capabilities and technologies that we can to always improve the products and improve the output for our customers because we know what a challenge they have. So the, the great thing that we have as far as a unique, you know, positioning in the market is our competitors, what we call our legacy providers have what I see is a tremendous disadvantage from a, a technology perspective because they're working on old systems and they're band-aided together and it's hard to implement things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and things that were very critical to our platform like natural language processing and the way that our search algorithms work and all the things that we're able to take advantage of, they're they're really kind of handicapped by. So it gives us a big, big advantage. And I'll say that... Um, super interesting. Some of the uh, regulatory enforcement agencies are starting to look to companies like us to help educate them on the technology and how that can help help the industry as a whole 
move forward a little bit quicker and trying to solve some, some of these problems. So it's been, it's been interesting. Um, so it's hard to get buy-in from customers sometimes when, you know, you're a smaller company and they don't know who you are um, and you're running up against uh, legacy providers who've been around for many, many years, such as Alexis Nexus, who's had quite a bit of time to build a brand for themselves, multi-billion dollar company. And, you know, and we're working with tier one banks and they might not know who we are. So, you know, it's really helpful to get a, a look from uh, FinCEN Financial Enforcement Crime Network to say, hey, you know, you might want to take a look at what companies like Rattle 4 are doing. Then they're not endorsing us, but they might, you know, they might say, hey, you might want to look at something, you know, from a technology standpoint that that some of these more uh, modern companies are doing. Totally. And, you know, speaking of some of your customers, I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit, you know, make this concrete for for the listeners. Who who are you working with? Like, who who, who can you tell us about? Sure. Well, so... You know, as I mentioned, when we first started talking, we're in two different markets. So I'll, I'll address the background screening market first. Um, we, our go-to-market approach is really through channel partners. And so we have probably the top five largest background screening companies, maybe six um, in the world that are our customers of ours. And they're looking to us to help provide data and screening services. And then they're packaging those services up and doing background checks and background screening for their customers um, utilizing our data. In the financial services industry, we have the same approach from a partner perspective. We typically don't go straight to the tier one banks, which the sales cycle is, you know, can be three to five years long. We tend to partner with other fintechs or financial services companies that are, you know, providing services or maybe um, technology to banks where they can um, ingest our data and serve it to their customers to scale where, you know, it would be, it would take us a lot longer to get there. So it's been a really good strategy for us and it's working. So. Can I ask you what you've learned by being sort of, um, you know, a, a unique company in, in two ways, I think one, uh, a company led by women in, in the tech space and another, you know, being a tech company in, in Georgia, in the South, like what, 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 what do you think people don't understand necessarily about, about the, those, those two paths you guys are, are, are blazing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question too. I get asked about the challenges around a woman-owned tech company all of the time. And I think people are surprised by hearing my answer. And my answer is it's been an incredible advantage, I think, especially, I, I don't know if it's a Georgia thing. I, I know that we do have quite an incredible network of support here, whether it's the Metro Atlanta Chamber or FinTech Atlanta, which I'm a part of the board there. And it's an incredible ecosystem here to support the industry and um, particularly women in tech. So I think it's a great time to be, you know, a co-founder and a leader in a woman-owned organization. So we, we, I feel like we get a lot of special attention because of that. And, and we love it. We appreciate it. Um, nothing but open arms we've received so far. So, yeah. Great. So just could we summarize here and and tell people where they can go to learn a little bit more about Vital4? Your 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 website is vital4.net. Is there anything you'd, you'd point them toward or, you know, like, yeah, just just uh, wrap it up for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, vital4.net. And, you know, there's a, I know there's contact forms there, so feel free to reach out and we're happy to to speak with anybody about what we do. And I just appreciate your your questions and your time here today. Yeah, definitely. You too. Thanks. Thanks again. Yeah. And to real quick little like, you know, tidbit of information, Atlanta was a nickname called Transaction Alley. 
Um, and you're, mm. you're right with the payment processors, but about 80% of the transactions in the country, and when I say transactions, I'm talking about a credit card swipe, a debit card swipe, uh, you know, even a gift card, any, any kind of transaction that's happening is originated out of Atlanta. So to your point, yes, we've got a huge fintech support system and, and a lot of payments companies, a lot of just financial companies. And we're really trying to make Atlanta known as, you know, really is the fintech capital of the world. And then we kind of compete with, with London for, you know, financial services in New York, of course, but that's more on the traditional banking side. So it's cool. It's a cool business to be in um, at a really good time and a really good place. 